Well, good morning, everybody. From Joshua 1, 9, hear these words. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Well, God, your name is indeed beautiful. And we give you thanks for the fact that it was proclaimed all week at summer camp. That kids, both in our body and in our community, friends of friends, were able to come, that they had a safe place to be with friends, to develop relationships with students and adults who care about them, Lord, and that they came and heard the truth of who you are, that you are a God who is with them, who listens to them, who loves them deeply. Because of that, they get to face life with courage. God, what an incredible truth to have be imprinted upon the hearts of the youngest in our body. I pray that it would shape them and stay with them as they grow and mature, that it would be a truth that would never leave them and that they would rely on it in hard seasons and in seasons of great joy. I pray that that would be true for us as well. And no matter what stage we are in our walk with you, Lord, we always need that truth, that you are a God who is with us, who listens to us, who never leaves us. And so we can go and have courage. We can go and live as you have called us to live. And in a world that is difficult, God, to live in, that's filled with natural disasters and wars, we think of both the people of Afghanistan and of Ukraine. Lord, we pray for them. We lift them up to you, that you would be with them, Father. And we think of our own nation and communities, Lord, that have faced so much over the past few years, God. It seems as though we may be coming to a place of stability, and yet things keep happening and keep facing us, Lord. And God, I pray that in the midst of the ever-changing landscape of our world, God, that you would give us great courage to be people who would proclaim truth and who would do so with incredible grace and love towards one another. God, I pray that we would be people who would bring peace, a peace that can only come from you. Lord, and that we would seek uh, to love our neighbor, to love those who have, you have put in front, of, in front of us, God, and that we, knowing that you are with us, can have the courage to do so. And I pray that through that we would see your goodness, that we would see the truth and the reality of who you are, Lord. So I pray for us this morning that that would um, be something that would just open our hearts and minds to receive word, uh, the word from you, Lord, through scripture, through what Eugene will say. God, I pray that we would walk out of this place, Lord, um, formed more deeply into the likeness of who you are. So be with us this morning, Lord. We love you so much. In your name, amen. amen. Well, I want to share with us just a word to prepare our hearts for what Eugene is going to come and share with us in a minute. Um, it's a scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, so let this word prepare your hearts to, to receive what Eugene's going to bring. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Will Eugene come up and share with us? Thank you, Becca. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see all of you this morning. I'd like to just jump right into it, and as we do so, um, I want to enter our teaching moment today starting by sharing with you the lyrics to a song that I came across while preparing today's message. It appeared on the 1982 album Friends by the disco funk group known as Shalimar. Any fans here? Anyone? Okay, all right. Did not expect to even hear one, but okay. <laughs> Maybe some of us, though, have heard this song at some point along the way. The song is called Don't Try to Change Me. And the first verse reads like this. Don't try to change me or rearrange me. Don't try it. Accept me for the way that I am. You know I love you. Oh, how I love you. But you got to understand that I am what I am. Now, I can't say that I've listened to much Shalimar in my life, but I can't help but feel like I've heard this song before. I feel like I hear it everywhere that I go. I hear it at the shopping mall. I hear it at the grocery store. I hear it at the cafe, at the restaurant. I even hear it in my family. I hear it in my marriage. I hear it in myself, if I'm being honest. Not necessarily the melody or even these specific lyrics, but the attitude the heart behind it. This song was released 40 years ago, and yet it feels just as relevant today, just as resonant with our modern desire to be who we are without having to change for anybody or for any reason. The self-love movement has rightly taught us that loving other people well begins with loving ourselves in a healthy way. But that message has also been twisted by some into a self-centered defensiveness that is really unwilling to accept criticism and certainly not a call to change. But anyone who truly loves themselves or others, anyone who truly loves themselves or others well knows that love and change are not mutually exclusive. In fact, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to call for change to pursue transformation. And when that call and pursuit start from a place of love and is supported with love, then the results can be truly a sight to behold. Last week we saw that the way of Christ starts in a place of love. It is open to everyone, even to the so-called outsider. It meets us right where we are. But even as the way of Christ meets us where we are, by the love of God, it does not leave us as we are. So let's explore this truth as we look into our passage for today, Colossians 2, 6 through 12. Having shared his heart as an apostle of Christ and having shown his understanding of the mystery of Christ, Paul was ready to make his appeal to the Colossian believers. He had already implied this appeal in previous passages, but now he was ready to exhort the Colossians, Colossian believers explicitly in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
As we saw back in chapter one, Paul had prayed for the Colossian believers to persevere in the way of Christ, but now Paul was asking the Colossians to unite their intentions with those prayers, to resolve to walk in Christ and in Christ alone. Paul reinforced his call to resolve in verse seven. Walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul stacked up the metaphors, calling the Colossian believers to be as resolved as a tree is rooted in the earth. To be like a structure built up and established, firm and immovable. And he warned against them following the false teachers and influencers they encountered in Colossae. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elements of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul urged the Colossian believers to resist those who sought to enslave their hearts and minds using philosophy and empty deceit. Now, this isn't a condemnation of philosophy in general, but specifically of those philosophies consisting of empty deceit, built on human tradition, and rooted in the elements of the world. This last phrase is actually translated as the elemental spirits of the world by the English Standard Version, as well as some others. But for reasons that we will cover in our last sermon in this series when we revisit these phrases, it is probably better to translate the phrase as the elements of the world. At any rate, the point is that the teachings of the false teachers and influencers were inconsistent with the gospel. They were not according to Christ. They were not centered on Christ. And over the course of verses 9 through 15, Paul gave three reasons why this was a problem. We will be looking at two of them today. The first is in verses 9 and 10. For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Any philosophy, religion, or mystical attempt to approach God that isn't centered on Christ is doomed to fail. Why? Because Christ is God. Christ isn't merely a good teacher or an insightful prophet or a messenger representing God. Though he is all these things, he is also so much more. He is God himself. He is filled with the whole fullness of deity, fully God, full of glory. Any belief system aimed at relationship with God, therefore, cannot be successful apart from Christ. Implied in this truth is encouragement that because they had chosen Christ, the Colossian believers were already experiencing the presence of God in their lives. As Paul reminded them, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. By the Holy Spirit of Christ, the Colossian believers had themselves become filled with the presence of Almighty God. And as the wind is made visible by its effects, so they could see the presence of the Spirit through his work in their lives. Thus, the false teachers and influencers of Colossae had nothing to offer that the Colossian believers didn't already have in Christ, in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and was now dwelling within them by his Holy Spirit. And though this could have been enough reason for the Colossian believers to ignore the false teachers and influencers, Paul gave a second reason 
in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The second reason why Christ is superior to the false teachers and influencers of this world is that he circumcises his people with a circumcision made without hands. Now I have to take a moment to thank Becca and Christine for listening to the Holy Spirit as they planned when the children and youth would be with us for the teaching moment and when they wouldn't be. (laughs) I want to encourage you though also, those of you who are with us, who tend to maybe gloss over verses like this to stick with me for the rest of the sermon. We're going to talk at length about circumcision, and it's not something that many people imagine when they think of their ideal way to spend a Sunday morning. But if we stick together, I sincerely believe that we will come away with a deeper appreciation for one of the most important but least discussed themes in the Bible. The topic of circumcision seems to appear out of nowhere, much like it might have to you this morning, but the Colossian believers would not have been surprised by its mention at this point in the letter. In the previous passage, Paul proclaimed the good news that the old covenant boundaries, excluding Gentiles from drawing near to God, had been removed in Christ. One of the most important and well-known of these boundaries was the ritual of circumcision. This boundary was established between God and Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God had given Abraham a visionary sign of his commitment to keep his promise in Genesis 15. In Genesis 17, God called Abraham to present a corresponding sign of his trust in God, and circumcision was that sign. But why circumcision? Why? Why not a tattoo? Why not some other kind of physical marking? Why not some other ritual? Why circumcision specifically? Well, remember, God had promised to give Abraham offspring, which was tantamount in ancient Near Eastern culture to promising him a future. Abraham's body had been unsuccessful in securing a future. He and his wife Sarah were infertile. Circumcision symbolized that infertility. Removing the foreskin symbolized all of it being removed, a symbolic castration. Now I know how that word might make you feel. I know how it makes me feel to say it scandalized, uncomfortable, extremely vulnerable. And I can only imagine what Abraham felt as God asked this of him. But bringing Abraham to a place of total vulnerability was the point of the ritual. We can sanitize it with clinical terminology, but really God was calling Abraham to countenance his impotence to face his weakness, to accept his inability to secure his own future. And in doing so, God was also inviting Abraham to turn to him, to trust in him, to depend on him for all he could not do for himself. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He accepted, he embraced his vulnerability, he entrusted his future to God, and he was circumcised. 
His circumcision was the external symbol of the internal reality of his faith. By it, he declared, I am not depending on myself for my future. I am entrusting my future entirely to God who brings the dead to life. In his letter to the Romans, Paul reminded his readers that the ritual of circumcision was instituted not before, but after Abraham began entrusting himself to God. Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. As Paul explained in the rest of that chapter, this was to show that it was not the symbol that was operative in Abraham's covenant with God, but the faith that it symbolized. Abraham's faith was decisive. His circumcision was merely a symbol of the covenant of faith between him and God. As we see back in Genesis 17, it was not only with Abraham, though, that God desired to establish this covenant. God commanded Abraham to pass the ritual down to his offspring. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Abraham's physical offspring, the people of Israel, did indeed keep the ritual of circumcision throughout their generations. But it turns out that you can have a symbol without also having what it symbolizes. When I was in high school, I had a girlfriend who liked to wear jewelry, you know, rings, necklaces, all that kind of stuff. One day I decided to buy her a gift, so I put together whatever was left of my allowance after gas and a week's worth of cafeteria french fries, and I went to the mall and I bought her a ring. And as I was checking out, the lady behind the counter asked me, so when's the wedding? I thought she was teasing me, so I, I just chuckled and said nothing. But the silence lingered in the air, and I realized, oh, she's being serious. And it hit me that it was a perfectly reasonable question for her to ask. I mean, first of all, having Asian genetics means that my face wasn't that different back then from what it is now. Second, I probably had a grave, ponderous look on my face, probably because there were video games that also needed buying on my tight budget. And third, without realizing it, I had been spending the entire time in the store in the section clearly labeled wedding rings. I don't remember uh, what I said to the lady. I probably just like shook my head like a dog shaking off muddy water, you know? Uh, but at any rate, I ended up walking away from the counter with a wedding ring uh, with no intention whatsoever to use it for its original purpose. And what is that original purpose? Well, of course, wedding rings are symbols of the covenant of marriage. They symbolize the commitment to love and comfort, to honor and keep someone in sickness and in health for richer or poorer for the rest of their lives. I was 17. I couldn't commit to AP physics. I had the ring, but I lacked the reality it symbolized, and it wasn't long before we broke up, as high schoolers tend to do. In a similar way, the people of Israel had the symbol of circumcision, but none of the faith, none of the dependence on God that it was intended to actually symbolize. Though they were circumcised outwardly, they were not circumcised inwardly, and eventually, God held the people of Israel to account through prophets like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 25 to 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, 
Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Note how God listed Judah and Israel alongside their physically uncircumcised Gentile neighbors. Though Abraham's offspring were circumcised in body, they were uncircumcised in heart. They lacked faith. And because it was faith that was operative in their covenant with God, their lack of faith made them covenant breakers despite being circumcised. And it wasn't long before the Babylonian Empire broke up what remained of the people of Israel and scattered them across all the other nations they had conquered. Now Moses had predicted this. As early as the book of Deuteronomy, Moses prophesied that Abraham's offspring would break their covenant with God and be no different from their Gentile neighbors, despite their circumcision. But astonishingly, Moses also predicted, also prophesied, that God, in his great mercy, would not give up on Abraham's offspring or his promise to Abraham himself. Listen to what God declared through Moses in Deuteronomy 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, and you return to the Lord your God, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the lesser known but most important promises of God, the promise of heart circumcision. Before the Babylonian exile, before Jeremiah, at the very beginning of Israel's history as a nation, God promised that he would one day circumcise their heart and the heart of their offspring, and he would change their hearts to match their bodies, that he would transform them from the inside out to actually become people who love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul. And the end result of this transformation would be the reward of eternal life. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart that you may live. In other words, God promised that he would transform Abraham's covenant-breaking offspring into the covenant keepers who receive all the blessings of the covenant. And he reiterated this promise throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And again in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. They may have used different words and metaphors in their oracles, but what Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesied was essentially no different from what Moses declared. God promised to change the hearts of his people, to perform heart circumcision by his spirit, to make them people who love, trust, and obey him just as Abraham did. Now, it's important for us to recognize this as a core promise of the Old Testament because we have this tendency to focus nearly all our attention on one of God's other core promises, the promise of forgiveness. Perhaps it is our persistent guilt as Westerners or 
our inescapable shame as Easterners, or maybe both if you're Asian American. (laughs) But there is a temptation to focus on the forgiveness of our sins as the main thing that God has promised to his people, to make Christianity primarily about soothing our consciences to reduce Christianity to guilt or shame management. But brothers and sisters, as good as it is, and I'm not trying to take anything away from this, as good as it is, the forgiveness of sins is actually merely the gateway to the other promises of God. Promises like the promise of heart circumcision. The chance to actually become people who go beyond the symbols, beyond the rituals, beyond the external and into genuine love for, trust in, and obedience to God. The forgiveness of sins makes possible God's promise to make covenant keepers and to make them not only out of Abraham's physical offspring, but also out of Gentiles. Gentiles like the Colossians, Gentiles like you and me. It is this promise that has been fulfilled in Christ. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Just as Abraham entrusted himself to God and was circumcised, so Christ entrusted himself to God and was crucified. Just as Abraham surrendered a part of his flesh, so Christ surrendered his whole body, putting off the body of the flesh. This was the circumcision of Christ, his death on the cross, the ultimate expression of dependence on the God who brings the dead to life. It was into this dependence on God that the Colossian believers followed Christ when they believed the gospel. When they chose the way of Christ, they were committing to the same faith in God, the same reliance on his promises, the same trust in his faithfulness, and they expressed this commitment, the first steps of their transformation, through the symbol of baptism, verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Just as Christ surrendered his body to crucifixion, so the Colossian believers surrendered themselves to being submerged underwater in baptism. And just as Christ entrusted himself to the power of God to raise him from the dead, so the Colossian believers trusted that they would be lifted out of the water again. This isn't the only meaning of baptism, of course, but as we will see, God willing, these verses prepare us for the third reason why the Colossian believers should reject the false teachers and influencers they encountered. But for today, this reference to baptism seals Paul's second reason. In Christ, they have new life as the people in whom God is at work, circumcising their hearts and recreating them from the inside out as people who genuinely love, trust, and obey him. By the spirit of Christ, they were being transformed into covenant keepers and therefore promise inheritors, heirs of eternal life in the kingdom of God. In Christ, they were experiencing the transformation of Christ, the transformation that he alone makes possible. And brothers and sisters, this is the transformation that is offered to you and to me. We can be changed. We can be made new. We can become more than what we've been by God at work within us. 
This is a promise of the gospel for which the forgiveness of sins prepares us. But as I pointed out a moment ago, it seems like this promise doesn't always get the attention that it should. And as I suggested, there may be many reasons for that, cultural reasons, philosophical reasons, historical reasons why we might focus on forgiveness to the exclusion of transformation. But I think the simplest reason for this might be this. Forgiveness is comforting. Transformation is challenging. That's at least how I feel. When I hear that I am forgiven, a weight comes off my shoulders. A burden is released. I feel a sense of catharsis in confession, and my heart is flooded with feelings of acceptance. But when I hear the call to transformation, those feelings are replaced with anxiety and insecurity. In forgiveness, I feel at peace and at home. When I hear the call to to change, I see a road stretching out in front of me, dotted with milestones I'm afraid I'll have to achieve on my own. The finish line is so very far away, somewhere far over the horizon, and I can't imagine ever making it that far. And what is at the finish line anyway? When I get there, if, if I get there, will I recognize myself? Will I still be me? Or will I have changed so much that I won't even know who I am? Who am I being asked to change into? Just a carbon copy of Paul or Jim Elliot or someone else? What awaits me at the end of the race? When I hear that I'm forgiven, I I feel God's acceptance, but when I hear that I can be transformed, that I must be transformed, I feel fear. The fear of loss, the fear of the unknown, the fear of failure, the fear of how difficult the process will be. And so it feels good to camp out at forgiveness and to leave transformation for another day. There is a real emotional tension between the sense of acceptance we feel when we think of our forgiveness through Christ and his cross on one hand and the call to be transformed through the heart circumcision of Christ on the other hand. So how do we deal with this tension? Well, it wasn't until I had children that it started to resolve for me. Every parent thinks their children are perfect on some level. (laughs) I honestly feel the same way about my boys. They are perfect to me. I love them just as they are. But at the same time, I cannot help but dream of what they will be like when they're older, when they have better command of their language, more practice at self-expression, a a clearer picture of what they like and dislike, more experience of the world and of the people in it. I can't help but wonder who they will be once they shed the limitations of childhood the limitations of adolescence, even the limitations of living under my and Hedding's care. I can't wait to see who they will become because if they are loved and supported each step of the way, they will become more of who they were always meant to be, more of who they truly are, more of who God created them to become. And won't that be a sight to behold? Won't that be just incredible to witness? We got a glimpse of that during summer camp this week, to see these little children coming alive in the truth and the joy of the Lord. Imagine if they live their lives into that, if they grow into that, and all the limitations of sin and fear slowly get stripped away. Imagine the beautiful creation on the other side of that process. You see, brothers and sisters, every parentally-minded person loves those in their care just as they are. But they also know 
that their beloved have so much growing to do, so much evolution to undergo, so much development to experience, and they are excited for this. They are excited to support this process because they can't wait for their beloved to become more of who they were always meant to be. They love them as they are, so all they want is more of them. More of them unbound, free from limitations, free from hindrances, free from defense mechanisms, survival strategies, addictions, and idolatries that they might have picked up along the way that divide their hearts from who they truly are, free from any sin and brokenness that might obscure the image of God they were designed to uniquely reflect. And brothers and sisters, you see, this is God's heart for us to perform heart circumcision within each of us, to perform spiritual surgery on each of our hearts, to cut away all the limitations and hindrances and idolatries and addictions, choking our hearts, obscuring our identities, clouding the unique reflection of his face in each of us. His call to transformation is not a call to external conformity to an outward appearance. His call to change is not a call to submerge who he created each of us to be under layers of churchiness and Christianese. No, God's heart is and always has been to recreate us as unique reflections of his image. Followers of Christ who live out the same dependence on God in our own unique and beautiful ways. The spiritual offspring of Abraham who walk in his footsteps of faith but in the unique ways that only we can. And when God accomplishes this heart circumcision, this this spiritual surgery, this work of recreating us to be all that we are always intended to become, when God accomplishes all this, won't that be a sight to behold? Just imagine an entire kingdom of heart circumcised people Reconciled to and reparented by God, trusting instead of fearing, hoping instead of despairing, exploring instead of suspecting, giving instead of taking, reaching out instead of pushing away, serving instead of ruling, shining instead of hiding, loving instead of hating, and living instead of dying. That's what awaits us, brothers and sisters, on the other side of change, on the other side of transformation, the transformation that Christ makes possible. This is the wonder and the beauty and the glory, brothers and sisters. We see glimpses of it here, but its fullness is on the other side of change. So let us lay hold of God's promise to transform us in Christ. Let us lay hold of the heart circumcision he has offered us in Christ. Let us lay lay ourselves bare on the operating table of his love. Let us welcome into our hearts the scalpel of the Holy Spirit the word of God. And let us trust that he will raise us up into new life as he did his son, Christ our Lord. Let us say to him a different song. Go ahead and change me. Please rearrange me. Don't stop it. Make me like who you are. I know you love me. Oh, how I trust you. And I truly understand you are the great I am. But now, please receive this benediction. As you go from this place, 
May God so fill your heart with his grace that you grow to trust the scalpel of his spirit to perform the heart surgeries in your life that need to happen, that will happen by the grace and love of God. May you receive those into your heart as he leads you into areas of change and transformation that we cannot even imagine what the outcome will be. Be blessed and be well, brothers and sisters.